Zechariah 6, 9 through 15. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take the exiles of Hadel and Tobajai and Jedidiah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Josokadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he is the branch that will come out of his place. He shall build the temple on the Lord, shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall bring the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord and the um, reminder to Helm, Tobijah and Jedidiah and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. To those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord, your God. Amen. Thank you, Annika. Annika was a good sport because I asked her to read that right before service started. <laughs> so thank you so much. A um, couple of things before I begin. Um, it's my dad's birthday this morning. So if you didn't know that, happy birthday to him. So thankful to God for him. He's been a, a great father over the years. And I know many of you have. I uh, had the privilege to have an awesome uh, earthly father, and I have as well. And uh, I just want to honor him this morning uh, because of all the Lord has done in his life and the impact that he has on us. Um, I'm grateful to God. Second, uh, thank you for your prayers for me and uh, my family. Please continue to pray for us. Um, I know you think, man, David's been preaching or teaching for over a decade. You know, this is easy for him to get back up. But this week has been uh, challenging, and these weeks and um, last month have been a challenge. And I just know it's just God's grace to have allowed me the privilege to study this week and then to come up here and preach the Word of God this morning. And so I attribute that to His goodness, His grace uh, through your prayers. So thank you for that. And we're grateful for the Lord in that. Uh, Third and finally, before we begin uh, with that, I just want to thank especially Justin Jeans and Eric Sunt, who have been preaching the last several weeks for me, and it's been a rich blessing. They're very gifted uh, men in proclaiming the Word of God, Um, but even more than that, they love the Lord, and their lives show that, and the way they live their lives and the way they live uh, and serve their families. And so I just want to commend them to you and thank God for dear men and women who surround us to help us always, but especially in our time of need. So I just want to give them a round of applause this morning. So thank you. All right, if you want to open up to Zechariah where Annika was reading, uh, we'll get started this morning. Um, And I want you to know if you uh, feel like it's Christmas yet. You guys yet? Not yet? Okay. Well, uh, it's October 1st, and uh, 
It's like Christmas is already around the corner. And what I mean by that is it won't be long until we hear Christmas music in the stores. Some people are very excited about that. Some people are very angry about that. Um, Hobby Lobby already has aisles and aisles of Christmas decorations and supplies out. If you haven't seen it yet, it's amazing. I told Anna I just wanted to walk through there for the second time because I just enjoyed all the colors and the lights. Uh, I think she thinks I'm a little off because I said that, but... Uh, Maybe you're already on the lookout for gifts because your loved ones have already begun to drop hints and make Christmas lists. You may have even skipped the pumpkin spice coffee creamer and have gone straight into the peppermint mocha coffee creamer in October, okay? Eden, my daughter, is doing that right now. She picked out the latest peppermint mocha that you guys are enjoying, the creamer back there. So she wanted to jump straight to Christmas. And maybe you have already begun to have talks with your friends and family about how you're going to spend the holidays and what you have to do to make sure you have all those days off so that you can travel when the Christmas season gets here. So all of these are examples of how a coming reality like Christmas can make a powerful ripple effect in your present living now, like in your wallet now, although it's coming then, and in your everyday drinking of your coffee creamer and coffee now, even though it's coming then, and in your everyday planning now, even though it seems like it's so far, far, far away. And this is an example of how having hope in a future reality can bring you up out of complacency and into planning or up out of indifference and into peppermint mocha coffee creamer, you know, and into action now. See, the post-exilic community in Zechariah's day is dealing with something similar in Zechariah 6, 9 through 15, which uh, Annika just got done reading. They have just heard Zechariah unpack six chapters of visions for them. You guys have been here. You've heard the series. We'd spent a bulk of our time at the beginning of Zechariah looking through these eight visions. And these visions were meant to lift their eyes up out of the discouragement of the present day that they were living in and into the promises of hope in the future. Those visions that Zechariah laid out weren't just to give them warm fuzzies. Oh, don't you just feel better about yourself? Don't you just feel better about life? Don't you just feel, ooh, better that Jesus is coming back one day and that just gives me a warm fuzzy? No, it was intended for the post-exilic community to give them power to change in the now. The future reality meant to impact the now. Sure, Jerusalem had no walls at the time of this being written to Zechariah's audience. The temple project had started and then stalled out. The monarchy hadn't been restored yet. No king on the throne. Not all the exiles had returned from Babylon at this time in their history. And Israel's enemies were still on top. They were still prospering. But the visions of Zechariah, those eight visions, they pointed to a new day. A day in the future when God would bring about his peace. Think about that. His justice, his righteousness on a cosmic level. And he, Jesus, would provide sin-cleansing victory and the abiding presence within his people forever. 
So that's what that day was looking forward to. And the question we are left with at the end of Zechariah 6, 8, which is the end of the vision section, is how is all of this going to happen? How is God going to accomplish that coming reality? That which seems like a dream. And doesn't it seem like Christmas is just far, far away, right? It seems too good to be true out there. Is it really going to come? Should the exiles look to their two leaders mentioned in chapter 3 and 4? Should they look to Joshua, the high priest, to accomplish this great uh, coming? Should they look to Zerubbabel, the Persian-imposed governor from the royal line of David? Should they look to Zerubbabel to accomplish this coming reality? Or should they look higher and should they look further out into the future to the coming Messiah priest? Jesus, Jesus, the son of God. And will they wait expectantly, not with their heads down, but expectantly, joyously for this appearing and let the hope of his coming, the hope of his appearing transform them to live joyful, trusting and faithful lives in the present. Uh, It's the latter, okay? (laughs) That's what we're talking about this morning. The title of my sermon is Faithfully Awaiting the Coming Priest King. Faithfully Awaiting the Coming Priest King. And as we begin, I want to pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all the privilege and joy it is to know you. You are the King of Kings forever. Lord, you are crowned and you are on high And we love you. We adore you. We thank you for saving us, Lord. We, you could have passed us by. You could have left us dead in our trespasses and sins. But Lord, we're thankful that you made us alive together with yourself, Jesus, and that you poured your Spirit out in us and you made us new. And that now, Lord, we get to be your children. We get to live on mission with you. We get to have your peace and your purpose in our life. We get to have hope, even in the coming day of your. Your, your second return, Lord, your, your coming return. And so we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for this time where we get to gather to hear your word. What a privilege and sing together and celebrate you. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you said in your word that where the spirit of the Lord is, there would be freedom. And I pray that you would give it. You would give it in abundance. Uh, Holy Spirit, you are our teacher. And so we pray that even above whatever I could say or do, Holy Spirit, that you would be teaching and empowering in this moment and that you would be speaking to every heart in this room and you would be showing yourself. Lord, you would be opening up blind eyes. You would be giving life where there is none or where there is struggle and, and just discouragement. You would be giving power to love you and to love your word and to see differently. Lord, all the other competing voices, Lord, that you would silence them, Lord, even if they're in our heads. And Lord, you would speak very clearly in this moment. We ask and beg that we would be that fertile soil in the gospels where your seed, your voice, your word would come in. And then when it lands, Lord, the soil of our hearts would be eager to receive it. And you would produce, Lord, fruit, supernatural fruit by your spirit. Lord, not just 30, not just 60-fold fruit, but 100-fold. 
Lord, for your glory, because you're worthy. You're worthy now in our lives. You're worthy all over the globe now to get the glory that you deserve, Jesus. And so would you exalt yourself in this time? Would you speak to your people and provide comfort and conviction and transformation so that we might hopefully await you, Jesus, in your coming? And then in the meanwhile, Lord, we just would celebrate on mission for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, the title of my sermon is Faithfully Awaiting the Coming Priest King. And again, that's a reference to Jesus. Zechariah has been amazing because really more than any other uh, uh, prophet, um, Zechariah speaks of, or minor prophet, Zechariah speaks of Jesus. And so as we begin this morning, surprise again, there's another chiasm this morning, you guys. And I hope you haven't forgotten about what chiasm is. Uh, One author says chiasm is a literary device that's used a lot in Hebrew literature where a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. And the result is a mirroring effect. And we saw that in the visions, the eight visions, and how each one paired, like one and eight paired, two and seven paired, as we got down towards the middle or center of the chiasm. Again, the center of the chiasm is the most important part of the chiasm, okay? It's It's the centerpiece of that chiasm. Think about a greater to less than sign, the outside of the triangle. Think about a big alligator head, right? You guys see that? Yeah, eating an apple or something. The hinge in the middle where it says 4-4, the hinge on the greater than sign is the main point of the chiasm. And so um, this morning, I mean, uh, these past weeks, we saw chiasm in the opening eight visions of Zechariah which spanned the first six and a half chapters of Zechariah. And now we get to see it again in our text this morning. The chiasm is just a lot smaller. It's a mini chiasm, and it spans only seven verses, okay? So seven verses, this is what we have. So we're just going to work through it. Um, The top of the chiasm one matches the bottom. So verse nine matches 15b in theme. And then God commissions, verse 10, matches number two down there. God commissions in verse 15. They pair three and three pair, four and four pair, and then it'll work its way back out. And hopefully you'll see that as we go. So my plan is to walk through the main headings of the chiasm as I unpack this text and base my sermon points off of that. Have I lost anybody yet? Okay, nobody yet. All right. If so, get a cup of coffee and we'll do it, okay? All right. So my first point, and there's notes on the back if you want to grab some notes and follow along. First point is God communicates. God communicates. You see this in verse 9 and at the end in verse 15b. So Zechariah starts off in verse 9 and wants us to know that he is not speaking independently. He's not making things up. He's not shooting in the dark and giving us his opinion on what may or may not happen in Israel's history. He has a sure and steady lamp in the dark pointing the way, and it's not him. It's God. He's God's prophet, and God is speaking to him and through him. And so God's prophet is speaking the rock-solid words of God in the midst of uncertain times, okay? And Israel had uncertain times then, 
and we have uncertain times now. And in the midst of that, God speaks in the darkness, in the uncertainty, in the lack of clarity. And he says in verse 9, and the word of the Lord came to me. That's what Zechariah says. The word of Yahweh, that's the Lord there. The self-existent one. Can you imagine? We talk about he's uncreated in the song that we sang. He is king forever. He's the uncreated one, the self-existent one. He had nobody make him. We all had God make us because we're so weak. He's eternal. We read in Psalm 90. He's everlasting to everlasting. He is God. And some of you read Psalm 90 this week and you said, Psalm 90 is depressing. That's what you said. You said, Psalm 90 is depressing. But that's because we die. But because he lives forever, we can take shelter in him. Okay, that's why Psalm 90 is not depressing. <laughs> you take shelter in yourself, in your word, in your voice, in your strength, then Psalm 90 and the rest of the Bible is depressing. But this text says, Yahweh, the, Lord of the, the word of Yahweh came, the self-existent, eternal, covenant-keeping God. That means he's chosen a people. He's speaking to Zechariah here in the text out the gate because he's chosen a people and he doesn't want them to remain in the dark. He wants to speak his hopeful word to them. And that's what he's doing. He's spoken. And now he's telling Zechariah, the prophet, hey, just share what I, I tell you. <laughs> just tell other people. They're in dark and uncertain times, definitely right now in Israel. Just share it's on you now to trust that in your discouraging present, Israel, for them, which was the temple's undone, there's no king on the throne, it's on you to trust God's word. It doesn't seem like it's going to be fulfilled, but it's on you to trust God's word, that you have a glorious, restored future coming because of the branch, because of Jesus. So trust my word while you wait. For that, they were looking forward to the first com coming. Trust my word, God says, while you wait. There's a lot of waiting going on. There's a lot of waiting going on for Israel then. Maybe you feel like you're waiting a lot right now. I do. For me right now, my discouraging time, if you hadn't heard me say it yet, is about a month ago or so, I had another mental breakdown, and it was not good. And I told somebody that the other day, and you're like, like, you meant you just got discouraged, right? And I was like, no, nah, it's, oh, it's clinical, you know, it's bad. Uh, I didn't just get discouraged. So it's leading me to second-guessing everything I think throughout the day, sleepless nights, confusing days, irrational and sometimes constant fears, and it's not fun, Right? But it's my lot. It's the lot that the Lord's given me in this season. And in that moment, it's tempting. In that moment, because I don't even trust myself at times, it's tempting to trust my word, my voice, the thoughts running through my head. It's tempting to trust, ultimately trust, other people in my life. But I hear God saying in that moment, trust me. I'm communicating through my word. I've spoken. It is said. Through my word, I've said it. And I hear in that moment God saying to all of us, whoever's voice we may or may not be trusting, whoever's communication we may or may not be trusting, he's saying at least this, Christ came. 
He died. He raised. He conquered sin and death. He's coming again to make all things new and to make all things right. So in your waiting and in the darkness and in the uncertainty, hold tight to God's word. Hold tight to God's word. David, hold tight to God's word. Aren't you thankful that God's spoken? Fully and finally, he doesn't go back and say, I didn't mean to say that, I'll erase that, I'll amend that. He doesn't have to, it's perfect. And he will accomplish everything he has promised. Everything. All his promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Every single one that he's ever made through the Bible, he will do. So that's what we bank on. Faithfully trust as you wait, specifically as you wait God's second coming, because God has spoken. Second point as the chiasm works its way out, God doesn't just communicate, he speaks, he also commissions. And that's in verse 10, and that's also in verse 15. See, God tells Zechariah to select out from the group that has returned from Babylon four specific men to do a job for him. And these are no-namers. Like, nobody really knows. You look at scholars, historians, they're like, who are these guys? That's the point. (laughs) In the annuals of history, when they get finished and like way down on into eternity, they're going to look back and be like, who is David Lyles? (laughs) But that's the kind of people that God uses, right? And so he takes these four no-namers. They don't even have like a last name. You don't even know. You don't really get them mentioned again in the Bible. And he says, I'm going to use them. I'm going to commission them. Now, this is encouraging for two reasons to me. First, God is choosing to use people who have a bad track record. The text says they're exiles. What does that mean? Well, in their context, Israel had been exiled. Why? Because they were so good and so well behaved and did everything God wanted them to do? Is that the reason why they got exiled to Babylon for 70 years? You tell me why. Why did they get exiled? Because they were unfaithful. They were idolaters. They were spiritual idolaters. They didn't love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And God chose in his love to discipline them and send them away so he could refine them and uh, work in their hearts and sanctify them but he chose to use them. And here, God is selecting these exiles, even though they had been previously unfaithful to him. And this highlights God's mercy, God's grace. And when you think about your own life this morning, I bet with me, you can think about your countless failures. You can think about your countless weaknesses. And God says, that's the person I'm gonna use. That's the person I'm going to set my abiding affection and love on. That's the person I'm going to save and redeem and put my spirit in, and I'm going to work through. That's the only kind of people God uses. So we don't abuse grace because we know it's abounding to us as his children, but we say thank you. We marvel at this little text right here and say, man, God, you would use me to do your work. Second, the mission of exiles is encouraging to me because it reminds me that God was faithful to do what he promised and bringing back his people from an impossible situation. You're like, they were in exile in a foreign land for 70 years, and they were under a superpower's boot. Like, there's no getting out of that. It's like, go back in time to the Exodus when Israel had 
God's, sorry, when Egypt had God's people under their boot right before the Exodus through the Red Sea. The same idea. And God bringing them back to Jerusalem in this moment in Zechariah's day is just a reminder that God could do the impossible. He said in the Old Testament, I'm going to deliver you from the Egyptians. I'm going to deliver you from Assyria and Babylon. And he did it, right? And he, they're back here. And if he had the power to do that, here's the catch. If he had the power to get Babylon, uh, Israelites or his exiles out of Babylon, then he has the power to aid them in their work in the now, right? And to do everything else that he promised in the future. It's just a a helpful reminder. He's like, I did this in your, in your past. And if I did this in your past, you can have a hopeful future that whatever I promised, I can accomplish as well. So Zechariah was to get Helda, Tobajiah, Jedediah, and Josiah. Now, most scholars believe, again, this is a chiasm structure that's working through. Most scholars believe that the same four men are mentioned again in verse 14, okay? You're like, those are not the same names. I'm reading my Bible. Those are not the same names. There's two different. And the reason why most scholars say that they're, they're different at the bottom in 14 is they're the same men. It's just their nicknames, okay? Right? So you, you call him, uh, you know, Dan. This nickname's Danny or something like that. It's just a little bit different, though, in the, in the spelling, okay? So what does God want them to do? That's the question. What does God want these four men to do? He wants Zachariah to get the first three men and then head over to whose house? Josiah's for a coronation of sorts. You guys tell me, kids, what's a coronation? Kids, what's a coronation? Not yet, not yet. What's a coronation? Yep, someone's gonna become king like a ceremony, right? So they're wanting to take those three guys, go over to Josiah's house, and do a coronation of sorts. So why is it at Josiah's house? Well, most likely because Josiah is a descendant of the important and priestly Zephaniah that is mentioned in the text, okay? Making his house the appropriate place for having a royal ceremony, okay? So God wants the four exiles to use their own resources and their own wealth to forge or build some kind of composite crown. What does that mean? It's composite because it's made of two different metals, right? Which was actually very unusual in Israel's day. They didn't often do that. Not yet, not yet, not yet. Um, Doing a great job. My son Titus is on the slide back there. You getting it, bro. That is a crown made of two metals, okay? Silver and gold. Titus, you got the silver and gold metal crown. It says like hope something. There it is. Maybe it kind of looks something like that, all right? And God is commissioning them for this task and it expects them to have some skin in the game, okay? So it's very interesting. Their exiles are coming back and God says, hey, I want you to use your own resources for the mission. You know why God asks us to use our own resources for the mission? Because they're not ours in the first place right? He's constantly telling his people, hey, look, I've called you to pick up your cross and follow me, right? 
I've called you to leave your nets and your jobs in, in a certain regard. I've called you to leave your family. I've called you to come to me because I'm the fount of living water, Jesus is, and give everything to me on a day-by-day basis. There's nothing that you keep in reserve and say, I'm gonna save this for a rainy day, right? Or God can have everything except that. And when he comes to these exiles, he says, I want it all. I want you to use your resources to build that crown for my mission because it's not yours in the first place and your sacrifice daily to me, whatever it might be. You say, I give money to the church. I help serve people who need some food for the church. I give them food. Whatever different thing you do for the cause of Christ and for his mission, we're doing that because he's of greater worth and value than that, right? We lay down time. It's my time. Okay, can't use my time. We lay out our time and our resources because he's of greater value and worth to us. We say, we found the treasure in the field, right? Christ has revealed himself to us. He's the greatest treasure. So we lay down our jewels and, and money and 401k and our time and our vacation, and we do it with joy. And that's what he's calling these exiles here to do. He's communicated and he's commissioned. And as we wait, we faithfully work because he's commissioned us. Third, God's creative crown reminder, reminders. God's creative crown reminders. That's the third point. So have you ever seen a real coronation? Anybody in the room? Okay, we got a few people. Maybe you saw Charles III get crowned king of the United Kingdom on May 6th of this year in Westminster Abbey. Anybody catch that this year? Okay, a few people. Everybody else is like, no, I didn't care about it, okay? It happened over the pond, okay? I don't care. Okay, but anyhow, in that moment, uh, he was crowned king. Why? It makes sense. And you can show the picture of him now, Charles III, and then show the crowning, Titus. Great job. Why did he get crowned? May 6th. Well, it made sense because he was the next in line heir to the throne after who died? Queen Elizabeth II. So it made sense. You're like, yes, Charles III got crowned on May 6th because he was the next in line. It made sense. But at the end of verse 11 of our text, the guys are to take the crown and set it on the head of somebody that you wouldn't expect. You're like, what? You're going to put it on whose head? This ain't right. It's the crown. You would think it's supposed to go to the next in line, the kingly line. Maybe Zerubbabel, right? But you definitely wouldn't expect it, if you were an Israelite, you wouldn't expect it to go on the head of Joshua, right? Sure, he's a leader in the post-exilic community, and he's important, but he was the high priest. That would be like crowning the archbishop of Canterbury, the spiritual leader Uh, who was the spiritual leader of the Anglican church instead of Charles III, okay? As one author said, for Israel, priests were to come from the line of Levi or Aaron, but kings were to come from the line of what? David, right? And the author goes on to say, at this moment, it was so shocking. Like if you're reading along or you're there with them and they go take the, the crown and they drop it on Josiah's head, you've been like, What? Because in the Old Testament, king and priest had been two different offices in Israel. They were never confused. They were never united. Yet here through this sign act 
or symbolic coronation, God is creatively announcing a coming fusion. And it's not steak and chicken tacos, okay? It's something far greater. Verse 13 in our text, it says, there shall be a priest on his throne. Whose throne is it? The king's throne. There shall be a priest on the king's throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And this is what Zechariah is preparing them for. Christ's person, Christ's work will harmoniously mingle those two offices of priest and king in a way they have never been before. And he will do it perfectly. The same one who will establish God's kingdom, the king, and will represent God's people to God, the priest, the same one will be responsible for establishing dominion of peace and righteousness and justice over the world would be the same person who would be responsible for atoning for the sins of God's people. And it would all be united in one person. The only catch is that every priest and every king before Joshua and before Zerubbabel, they would fail, right? Isn't that true? Christ would do this perfectly. He would lead and love perfectly and he would die and use his own blood to cover our sins, right? Just want to read a, read a, read a, read a, you guys met Rita yet? No, I haven't either. But I'm going to read Hebrews 9 that kind of pulls this priestly idea together. Hebrews 9, 11. It says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he's talking about heaven, the earthly priest in Israel entered, entered into the temple, physical temple. When Jesus came as high priest, he entered into heaven itself. He entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's our king. That's our high priest, Jesus. And the next verses in Zacharias show us just that. It shows us that fusion, priest and king coming together in one future figure. And they say that figure's name is the branch. Everybody say the branch. And now we're not talking about trolls, that movie that came out a couple of years ago. The branch, what do we mean by that? Well, for the exiles, the scene with the crown on top of Joshua's head would remind them that God would do a new thing in, in their future through the Messiah. And they could faithfully watch for God to act because he had left them reminders with his promises. Uh, fourth point, and then, yep, and we're gonna talk about that. God's coming priest king is the fourth point. God's coming priest king. And you can leave that up, Titus, the branch picture. So as Joshua is symbolically crowned, God wants Zechariah to say this. So as the guys put the crown on Joshua's head, he wants them to say this. Behold, look, see a man whose name is the branch. The man who would go by the code name branch 
See, that code name branch had already been mentioned. It's been prophesied many times in Jeremiah. And in 3315, it says of the branch, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called the branch, the Lord, our righteousness. So the branch is a righteous king and he will be the people's righteousness. And yet in Zechariah 3.8, a text that we've discussed in sermons past, we are told the branch is not just a king, but he would be God's servant who would be inscribed or a pierced stone who would take away the sins of his people in a single day. Justin preached about that. And he would give his people spiritual peace and spiritual prosperity. So the branch, the coming branch is not just the righteous king, but he is the gracious priest who will atone for his people's sins. And then Zechariah 6, 12 through 13, our text this morning, it goes a little further and it says this, the branch will do three things, three main things. And uh, they're all beginning with B, okay? So you gotta love that alliteration. They're all, it just worked itself out for me. Three Bs. What will the coming branch, what will Jesus Christ do? Great question. First, he will branch out from his place as the king of kings, right? He will branch out from his place. What does that mean? He will be from the family tree of David. Think about a family tree. And where every other king was brittle, sinful, lacked, and ultimately died, Jesus is and will be the eternal righteous son of God. Throw that branch picture up again, Titus, if you don't mind. It's so crazy because every other king, like I said, was faulty and broken. Every other savior that we look to is faulty and broken, but Jesus is coming as the branch and he will be strong in a mighty branch to save and deliver his people from their sins. You can pull that down, Titus. Thank you. Second, he won't just branch out from his place. The branch will build his temple as king. You see that in the text? He will build his temple. Now, Zechariah 4, 6 through 7, last week's text, we were told that Zerubbabel will build the temple. But when that text said that, it meant that physical temple in Zechariah's day, right? But this is a future prophecy of the branch, pointing ahead to Jesus's work that he would accomplish in creating a new kind of temple through his death and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. What's the new kind of temple that Jesus is gonna create in the future. You guys tell me, do you know? It's not a physical temple with block and mortar and stone. What's the new kind of temple that Jesus is gonna create? Anybody know? The church, that's right. But not the church building, the church as a people, right? Jesus, this prophecy is pointing ahead and saying Jesus will savingly join himself to the people, a people. He is a cornerstone. He is the cornerstone of the church and he will build his people into a holy temple where his presence personally dwells and he will use them. 
his people, filled with his spirit to radiate his glory to all the nations. Isn't that amazing? And they will hear his gospel and they will see his goodness through his people. That's what this is a prophecy of. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says, And as you come to him, that's Jesus or the branch, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, that's Jesus, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus, the coming branch, he's gonna branch, branch out. He's gonna build his temple. And the third B, you guys tell me because it's in the text. I don't have to make it up. What's the third B, do you know? He's gonna bear royal honor. What does that mean? Bear royal honor. Jesus will raise from the dead after he dies for the sins of his people. He will ascend to heaven and he will sit enthroned at the Father's right hand as king forever. He is king forever. He is king forevermore. That's what's going to happen. He is going to assume majesty. He's going to radiate royal splendor as the divine king who's gloriously and sovereignly reigning unopposed in heaven now. Now we think he's reigning opposed, right? We think there's others in power that make it so he can't get what he wants accomplished, but that's faulty thinking because Jesus reigns supreme and sovereignly reigns no matter how chaotic the world is, no matter how chaotic your life looks, or my life looks, he's reigning. And his kingdom is presently now coming through his people as he lives his life through you, as he works his priestly work through you and his kingly rule through you in this world. He's currently reigning and ruling through his people and his kingdom will come fully one day when he comes again at the second time. It's written in Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And at that time, the second coming, he will reign forever and ever. So backing back out from the chiasm, Titus, you got that chiasm picture up again. I'm gonna show them really quickly. You're doing great, Titus. I know my points were a little scattered this morning. But working back out, if we hit four in the middle, I'm just gonna walk back out and hit some of the themes the same themes again as I walk back out from the bottom, three, two, and one. God creatively reminds, God commissions, God communicates. All right, thanks, Titus. So a few things, where do we go from here? Well, again, mentioning the, the other points of the chiasm, God gives another creative crown reminder in verse 14. He did earlier in the chiasm when he placed that crown on Joshua's head and now he's gonna do another creative crown reminder as he takes that crown off of Joshua's head and he throws it where? Where do they put it? Verse 14, where do they put it? Anybody know? Where do they put it? In the temple, in the actual physical temple. So after the symbolic coordination of, jo coordination of Joshua, he tells the four exiles from the beginning to take the crown that they helped supply and build and put it in the temple. Is the, crown where, is the temple where the crown goes? Is it? 
No, it's not supposed to be in the temple. But why do they put it there? Well, because it seems like God wants to give them an important reminder, okay? So yes, we forget things, don't we? All of us do. We forget our car keys. We forget our social security numbers. We forget the birthdays of our dad or our friends, right? We forget all kinds of things. But what's worse than forgetting all those things? What's worse than forgetting all those things? Forgetting Jesus? Forgetting his love? Forgetting the work that he's come and accomplished already through the cross and the resurrection? And forgetting what he's going to come and do finally again in his second coming? And even though the crown it was placed in the temple, and that's a very unusual place. Think of it like a sticky note for God's people. You guys ever put sticky notes on things? What are they for? Reminders. I forget all kinds of things. So even at work, before I leave, leave the church office at the end of the day, I'll usually have like an index card laying by the door, like on the mat, or something like a sticky note out to tell me, don't forget to pick up whatever for Anna on the way home. And this is kind of that crown is a sticky note in the temple for God's people. It's a reminder that God would surely do what he promised to them. And what did he promise? He promised to send the priest king, the branch, to accomplish salvation and redemption. God's word, scriptural songs, God's people, and a host of other things can become our sticky note reminders, a reminder of God and all of his glory, a reminder of what he's done and a reminder of what he will sure to do as we faithfully await him. So not just another creative crown reminder, but verse 15, another reminder of God's commissioning. God seems to be reminding a new future group of exiles that he's going to use them in his future temple building work. And this time in the bottom verses, it's not the exiles that were mentioned earlier that just had gotten back from Babylon. It's these exiles that were far off, the text says. And these exiles seem to be the people that God is going to save from every tribe and tongue and nation, the future Gentiles. That includes us. So we are a fulfillment of this prophecy. People that were far out, far out, far off and brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, like Ephesians says. This text points out that the branch will be doing all the heavy lifting and that the exiles will only be helping because Christ will be doing the work through them on that day in his missions. And then finally, again, at the very end of the chiasm, verse 15b, another reminder that God communicates or God speaks. Zechariah in this section by saying this, if you want to look at it in verse 15b, he says, and this shall come to pass. What's the this in the context? What? The priest king coming, and this shall come to pass, Jesus coming in the future, if, there's condition, right? If Jesus is going to come in the future and do his restoring, saving work, if, what? You diligently obey the voice of the Lord our God. That sounds promising, doesn't it? If you have your act together and you diligently obey, then the priest king's going to come. You think Israel did that perfectly? Nope. Do you think you could do that perfectly? Nope. 
One author said that the promise was that if the people would seek the Lord in covenant faithfulness, God would bring about all the promises related to the branch and his coming. This is actually a partial quotation from Deuteronomy 28. The idea is do it right and get the blessing of the covenant, the covenant king, the covenant savior coming to redeem you. Do it wrong and you get all the curses of disobedience upon you. This means that under the old covenant, it was kind of like this mindset, do it and live, which meant judgment and curses for everyone because the people of God always fail, right? They never fully fulfill the condition. But the hope and the grace of the new covenant that Jesus enacted by his coming and his kingly work and his priestly provision is not do this and live, but instead Jesus did it all. He paid it all. So live, right? That's the promise. Aren't you glad in the midst of your inability to fulfill God's law, just like Israel and Zechariah's day, to be entirely faithful to the covenant that Jesus remains faithful for you and then he provides forgiveness for where you lack and empowerment for you to live for him. He took our curse and instead he gave us his blessing. That's what happened through the cross and through the resurrection. He took our curse and gave us his blessing. He died so that we could live. He empowered us by his grace and his spirit. So now we can diligently obey his voice that we're hungry for that. We're like, God, you spoke. You're the only one whose voice matters and I want to accomplish it. But here's the difference because of the new covenant. It's not obedience out of an attempt to earn God's favor or show him all that you can do. It's obedience as a celebration of God's grace, out of God's goodness, out of God's love, out of God's provision, out of God's power, a celebration for all that he is and all that he's done as our priest king. And as we end, a couple of applications, and then we're gonna sing a couple songs together. Very simply, if you aren't a Christian, and you hear the Lord speaking to you this morning through his word and by his spirit, I want you to repent and believe on the branch, on Jesus today. He's glorious. He's the greatest reality in all of the world. He is God come in the flesh and he died for your sins, your lack of diligence, your lack of doing what he's called you to do perfectly, every sin that you ever committed. He died and he raised again so that he could give you new life and he could make you his, his child. So repent and believe that message and be saved today. If you're a Christian, I'm asking you with the help of God to treasure the branch more and more and more for who he is. He assumed majesty, he's glorious. And for what he's done to save us. And I'm asking you to do whatever you need to do in this moment to remind yourself again and again for what that means for you and what this means for those around us in the world we live in. And I'm telling you, you've got a privilege. You've got a commission. You've been called to take his message, the hope of his gospel, to use your resources and your life and your time. And it was all his in the first place. And it could be a joy with his help because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I'm asking you, how can you be a part of that mission today? And will you do that. I'm asking you with me to faithfully await the coming priest 
king because he's coming again to make all things right. And won't that be a glorious day when we see perfect righteousness, when we see perfect justice displayed, when we get to spend an eternity in the arms of the one who loved us and died to redeem us. And every tribe and tongue will surround the throne who've placed their faith in Christ and will worship our king forever.